Hi, I'm Ravi Agrawal, Foreign Policy Magazine's Editor-in-Chief. This is FP Live. Welcome to the show. Israeli democracy is in peril. The country is in a moment of crisis. Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu's coalition, which is the most far-right, religious, and extreme government in that country's history, is seeking to pass a sweeping plan to limit the power of the judiciary. If it's approved, it would remove the Supreme Court's ability to act as a check on the Knesset, the country's parliament. Critics say the judicial overhaul could transform Israel from a liberal democracy into something that resembles an autocracy. At the same time, the government is passing new measures that benefit Jewish settlers in the West Bank at the expense of Palestinians, which leads to more violence. For 11 weeks now, hundreds of thousands of Israelis have taken to the streets in countrywide protests to show their opposition to the judicial overhaul. That group has included Nobel Prize winners, top economists and CEOs, former high-ranking security officials, and thousands of reservist soldiers. Many have openly warned that the move would harm Israel's economy. In fact, some big investors have already pulled their money out of Israel, prompting concerns about the future of the country's lauded high-tech sector. One of the leading voices of those protests, Ehud Barak, is my guest this week. Barak was Israel's prime minister from 1999 to 2001 as head of the left-center Labour Party. He also served as the country's defense minister and deputy prime minister, and prior to that, he was a career soldier who rose to be the chief of Israel's military. Barak remains the most decorated soldier in Israel's history. As always, FP subscribers get to send in their questions, which I sometimes ask on their behalf. If you'd like to do that too, subscribe now. Use the code FPLIVE for a discount. You can also watch these interviews live in video if you go to foreignpolicy.com live. But for now, here is Ehud Barak. Ehud Barak, thanks for joining us at FP Live. Thank you for having me. So let's start with this. On Thursday, just last night, Netanyahu gave a speech in which he said he would consider the other side. But he still doubled down on his overhaul of Israel's judiciary. He also oversaw a bill that prevents the court from declaring him incapacitated. When you were listening to the speech, how did you react? I even uh, published my reaction to the shallow and hollow speech full of lies. Uh, it seems that Netanyahu by now is lying, not because there is a need uh, just to protect his reputation as a liar. Uh, and I don't believe that anyone believes him, uh, neither in the opposition or the protest, but not even within his own coalition. That's one of the reasons to this whole urgency. Everyone needs his turf and no one trusts him that he will give them what they need after he gets what he needs. So it's, uh, it became kind of a hectic operation. It was nothing, basically. We, we responded, and the opposition leader responded within minutes, saying that it means nothing, just meaning that the kind of attempt to destroy Israeli democracy using the tools that democracy gives and the freedom that it uh, bestows upon its citizens in order to destroy it from within. So technically, everything they're doing is according to the law. But in overall terms, it's blatantly illegitimate activities of the government. 
which in my judgment makes the, it become the obligation of any citizen, not just its, its right to defend our democracy by any means that he can, namely to go into nonviolent civil disobedience in the tradition of uh, Henry David Thoreau, let's uh, later on, Mahatma mm. Gandhi, uh, Martin Luther King, the, the seven from Chicago, even the guys who deposed Milosevic. History doesn't repeat itself, but it rhymes, as Mark Twain said, and we are going to win. Uh, the protest will either make Netanyahu capitulate or fall down. You know, I, I have to say, I mean, you mentioned Gandhi, for example. Uh, Gandhi was launching civil disobedience against colonial oppressors. Uh, Netanyahu is, of course, elected democratically, not once, but several times, again and again and again. And I have to ask you, you know him better than most people. You were his commander in the military. You served with him in the same coalition. You've also been his political rival, and you are his rival now. What, what do you think is driving his actions? Look, Netanyahu is not a lightweight. He's an educated guy, knowledgeable, uh, thoughtful, and they even have certain rights. I know him from the time he was 19 years old, his elder brother, the one who was killed in, in the raid on Entebbe, was my deputy and my best friend. They, they, all of them were under my command. And I defeated him in uh, in general election and then served uh, in his government as Minister of Defense. The man uh, changed along the years. He was much more kind of solid as a younger uh, leader. It's probably a proof of the old saying that uh, power corrupts and absolute power corrupts absolutely. So he's not absolute kind of a monarch, but he had uh, for too long no term limit the Israeli system, but it's not a simple system. It's a democracy, vibrant democracy until recently, but with no constitution, no checks and balances, no two layers of the parliament, no president that can veto uh, a law. And uh, what motivates Bibi is the fact that he got into criminal case. He has three criminal cases, uh, bribery, a breach of trust, fraud based not on something that he has been done when he was an ordinary citizen, but things that he had done when he was a minister of the government. So it's a complicated case for him. He wants to get out of this trial. Mm. And uh, unlike previous prime minister like Olmert or previous president like Katsav, who went to to jail, uh, Bibi decided to attack the judicial system to threaten its independence, to destroy it, and then have his own, so to speak, uh, kind of uh, judges uh, sitting on it or replace the general attorney or anything that should be done. Uh, so it's basically, a, I call it an unholy alliance of Netanyahu, who is defendant, uh, another minister who is already convicted criminal twice for bribery and man- money laundering. And there are the ultra-Orthodox who want their turf. Uh, they don't participate in the army, don't participate in the labor force, but they want a lot of money. And right. there are those extreme fanatics, the Jewish supremacy, Jewish supremacy kind of uh, prophets uh, that are, uh, needs their own turf. So they all blackmail Netanyahu. So let me ask you this, um, just to sort of, set it out there for our viewers around the world. Are you planning a political comeback? The way you speak, it sounds like you might be. 
No, no, I'm not talking about myself. I cannot become a prime minister uh, even if I wanted to. Uh, you have to be a member of Knesset. But I invested uh, my life in the uh, shaping of this country, and I'm really care about it. We describe it as going from a liberal democracy into dictatorship. We have a binary observation. The uh, legislative branch in Israel is already enslaved to the executive branch. And the Knesset practically do not inspect uh, the operations of the government. So there are only this, the third branch, the judicial branch, which protect Israel from being dictatorship. Now Netanyahu planned what the chief, uh, chief of the Supreme Court, a lady named Esther Hayut, described as, she said, it's not judicial reform, it's a direct attempt to crush the independence of the judicial uh, branch and to push Israeli out of the domain of democracy. So it's not going to be uh, like Russia under Putin or Turkey under Erdogan, but like Hungary under Orban or Poland under Kaczynski, probably in two weeks. I'm going to ask you to linger on that a little bit because you are the most decorated soldier in Israel's history. And we know how much of an integral role the military plays in Israeli life. Uh, you mentioned all these people who are protesting, reservists are re refusing to report to duty. What are the implications, especially the national security implications, of the reservists not showing up, of having senior um, former military officials protest in the way that you're describing? When you see on the CNN every several nights some glow of fire aura over Damascus that some research and development uh, installation also of Damascus were hit by uh, Israeli uh, weapons or that uh, a convoy on the ground going from Iran to Iraq to, to Syria uh, to Lebanon and on the Iraqi border the, the uh, vehicle number 10 is hit and, and explodes. That's done by Israeli uh, Air Force, by um, Spatial Forces, by mm -hmm. cyber warriors, by uh, equivalent of the NSA and GHCQ. It cannot be operated effectively without those reserves. So basically, there are a lot of critics of these reserves. How, how dare you to, to leave your job? And basically, they say the following. We have a contract with a democratic, uh, liberal Israel, uh, Israeli government, where we are ready to risk our life, and we are ready to, from time to time, to bury one of our comrades, to sacrifice his life, even if we totally against the policies of the freely elected government. Namely, under democracy, you have a contract. You are ready to risk your life, because it's democracy, even if you don't agree with any policy of this government. But we don't have... And we won't have any contract with a dictator or dictatorship. And we define dictatorship from step one. If Netanyahu just passed the, only the first vote, uh, law that he wants to pass, the one that basically gives the government full control of the uh, nomination of uh, judges on all levels, including the Supreme Court, including the president of the Supreme Court, from this moment, Israel is not a democracy anymore. And what is not democracy, we call dictatorship. And it's not just formally, not, it's practically not democracy because the whole government is 
led now not by the interest of the state of Israel, but by interest of a small group of a defender and a, a, two criminals and kind of a hyper racist kind of nuts uh, like Smotrich and Bengvir and ultra-Orthodox group that did not participate mm. in carrying the burden of the country. That's abnormal situation, and normal citizens do not do not agree to serve it. So they made clear that they are not going to show up. So it will be very tough. There are so two I, issues I that Bibi, come, Bibi I, cannot I, control. Bibi yeah, cannot I, control the impact on the economy, which, which is beyond his control. He cannot control the impact on the uh, serving forces, and that's a major challenge. That's why I'm sure that he will have to capitulate. He will not achieve what he wants. So uh, there's a lot to unpack there. I want to come back to the economy. I want to come back to democracy, but I want to linger a bit on what you've said about the national security implications. And I want to take it a, just one step further. So if the Supreme Court strikes down the laws, what happens? So, And I ask because um, the police chief, uh, Kobe Shabtai, for one, has already said he would obey the judiciary, not the Knesset. And yeah, for sure. I, I just want to know how this works out, given all of the roles you've held, um, you know, head of the army. You know, how does this confusion play out for the head of Shin Bet, for the head of Mossad, for the head oh, of the army? I, I'll tell you. If he passes the laws in a second and third reading, uh, meaning making it an active law, it will come to the Supreme Court. Supreme Court has the authority, or at least had it until uh, recently before a uh, uh, spatial law will cancel this uh, right. But uh, they have the capacity to um, cancel the law. They will cancel the law. Government might, might try to ignore this cancellation. And then the, the test comes to the what I call the, the gatekeepers and the defenders of our sovereignty, namely head of police, head of secret service, the commander of the armed forces, and the head of Mossad. They will, they might face contradicting orders. Let's give an example. The Supreme Court order to dismantle certain illegal settlements in the West Bank. And the, uh, the prime minister, or probably the uh, defense minister, or the new minister in the ministry, named Smotrich, who is uh, the head of one of these uh, uh, racist uh, parties, they will order the, the commander of the army uh, not to dismantle the same settlement. So uh, the chief of the army has to decide whom he uh, obeys or follows. He will ask his legal advisor. The legal advisor will point to the a general attorney of the government, and she is also a lady. We have in the fighting places, we, are, we have some ladies. And she will order them to follow the ruling of the Supreme Court, and they will do. I am confident that the chief of staff and the uh, head of Secret Service and the head of the Mossad, and to a certain extent, even the head of the police, as he committed himself, will follow the orders of the Supreme Court. So this is an open uh, constitutional crisis. Without constitution, I have to remind. Uh, and it's clash. And in this clash, I believe that this clash will uh, 
um, cause cracks within his coalition. There are certain people in the coalition, among them, uh, the, I believe, the, the Minister of Defense, Gallant, uh, Minister of Agriculture, Dichter, uh, another Minister of Economy called uh, Barkat, and a famous dissident from the Soviet Union. These guys might not go that far. If there is an explicit crisis, they might not participate in voting. Another possibility is that by then, if the Supreme Court cancels laws that the government passed, probably some of his uh, colleagues to the government, either the ultra-Orthodox or the racist, they will not uh, get what they did. So they might uh, uh, kind of uh, leave. And it might develop in other ways as well. I don't, I'm not a prophet. Mm. But, so uh, I have to ask you, given, say, given everything you're saying about this state of confusion, and then earlier you were pointing out the national security risks, um, and you know our audience is you know a lot of foreign policy watchers, how would Israel's enemies view this strife, this confusion, these contradictions that you're describing? And the reason why I ask this question again is just to play out the national security risks of the moment we're in right now? Look, we are surrounded by uh, enemies, rivals of, of all times. The Iran in the background and the Hezbollah much closer, Hamas on the other side, and terror from within the, the Judean Samaria, and, and even inside Israel, uh, uh, kind of a small Israel. Uh, I think, uh, personally, they, everyone understands including our enemies, that if a full-scale war or even full-scale clash with the Hezbollah let's say, will open next uh, Tuesday, all these uh, reservists will immediately come to work. The pilots will fly and the, the cyber uh, warriors will fight uh, from their air-conditioned rooms and the operators of these uh, drones will, uh, will sit behind their screen and the Iron Dome will, will be work. Everyone will do it. So that's a reason for them to think twice. I believe that most of them believe that probably they can try to, to harass us here and there, but it's not the right moment for them to open a major operation because if they open one, they just unite the Israelis. They put an end to the crisis overnight or immediately. So I think that basically it's it's a much tougher uh, crisis than anything that we experienced in since the establishment of the state because it's internal because it's crucial because in our history we had a long history a millennia backwards of of uh, destroying ourselves from within mm. by uh, internal quarrels and so on and uh, we have to to learn the lessons. Uh, somehow it, it seems that this coalition doesn't see the lessons in spite of many of them being uh, religious. So they have read the Talmud, the, the warning are there uh, repeatedly. So I, I, I don't believe that it creates an external threat uh, to Israel beyond the ones that are already there. Uh, but the internal risk is huge because if we allow these... Uh, regime change uh, to happen, there is no easy way backward. Dictatorships are not removed through election. That once Israel loses the independence of 
the Supreme Court and the judicial system, everything can happen. Nothing is secure. You are listening to Foreign Policy Live. Remember, you can watch these conversations live and on video on our website, foreignpolicy.com slash live. Subscribers get to send us questions in advance, which I use. So sign up. Use the code FPLIVE for a discount. So let me broaden this a little bit, because, of course, what you're describing is internal, but there are external forces as well. When you were prime minister, when you were a politician, uh, I know you uh, had many occasions to speak with uh, your counterparts in America. And Netanyahu received a call over the weekend from U.S. President Joe Biden. What do you think Biden said to him? And how do you think any U.S. pressure might play out? You know, I happen to know uh, know Biden for 40 years. I'm uh, half a year older than he. Uh, I was half a year older even when we met, uh, first met. And uh, I really know he's a great friend of Israel, great. He's a kind of non-Jewish Zionist in a way, a great supporter of Israel. But I think that beyond closed door, he told the Tanyahu the truth, that this, this is a kind of, uh, strangely looking behavior for, for a leader of democratic Israel. And that uh, I don't think that he described it as a, a tragedy for America, but a potential tragedy for Israel. And I, I think that behind closed doors, both he and uh, Blinken and uh, the head of an, uh, the CIA or everyone who visits Israel tell him the truth that it doesn't seem proper. It's, uh, it hurts the relationship with America. But I don't expect America to, to leave here, to abandon here. The, the commitment is, is stronger and, and somehow bigger. And I don't expect the America, the American administration, to lie on the, on the barbed wire uh, for us, for the Israelis. The, we cannot expect the Americans to move further than we are ready to move against our government with our own voices and body and, and uh, determination. So let me ask you this. One of the, the things that, of course, America and the world is very concerned about is Iran uh, and its journey towards a nuclear weapon. Do you see any changes on that front in the status quo in terms of how uh, the U.S. may ensure that Iran doesn't obtain a nuclear weapon? Do the reforms that are underway right now the regime change that you're describing in Israel, the change in the type of regime, what does that change in terms of Israel's relationships and other countries' willingness to look out for Israel? Look, uh, Iran is uh, probably a, a subject for a different uh, discussion. It might take too long to go into the details. I personally believe that uh, Iran is already a de facto threshold nuclear uh, state. And that uh, they are not ready to admit it because it just will put heavier sanctions on them. And for other reasons, the American administration is not uh, wanting to uh, say it or to expose it because it might need certain uh, American uh, responses they are not considering at this stage. But I think that uh, the Iranians are uh, 
even even ahead of what our intelligence communities believe. But that's a, a, in this regard, it's a, it's a, it's a main, main threat to the stability of the Middle East, but it's not really relevant to the present case in Israel. I have to say respectfully, uh, you say it's not connected, but you know, were I to put on my, my hat as you know, the editor of a foreign, a foreign policy magazine, um, that's not how other countries think. Other countries see a country in crisis. They see a country that, as you've described it, is as a constitutional crisis, is in chaos. Uh, you know, people are out protesting all the time. You've described yourself. Senior military officials are confused as to who they listen to. It's harder to imagine what you're describing that you know, if there is a foreign threat, then everyone suddenly unites. That's that's very hard for me to see. Yeah. Uh, look, uh, uh, if we start to discuss Iran seriously, we won't discuss anything else. It's just probably sure. another such meeting. I get that. But le let me tell you, tell you the following. Uh, it was a grand negligence of Netanyahu and Trump that when Netanyahu convinced Trump to go out of the JCPOA and the rest of the members of the JCPOA remained there, there was an urgent need to prepare a B plan just for the case that Iran against uh, Netanyahu's and Trump wishes will start to close the gap toward nuclear threshold status. For reasons unexplainable, they didn't do it, neither America, neither the America nor the Israel. And I am really worried that by now, neither Israel nor America has a, a, a kind of plan for a surgical uh, kinetic operation that might take a night or two nights and which will delay the Iranian uh, military uh, nuclear plan for let's say two or three years. I don't believe that there is such a plan. That's what defined the Iranian only the Iranians will now decide when and how they will enter into the club of nuclear powers. And that was the main commitment of Netanyahu. And that shows how irresponsible or haunted by his uh, criminal case he became. He does not serve the interests of Israel. During his campaign just three months ago, he announced the top priorities being Iran, uh, kind of tackling the Iranian challenge, making Saudi Arabia also a, a partner in this Abraham Accords, fighting the uh, shortage of housing and fighting the cost of living. He abandoned all these list of priorities in order to intensively pass this package of laws that turn Israel uh, uh, into a, a kind of uh, a place where, where there are no separation of power. There is no independent Supreme Court. So let me just try and bring us back to the present moment. I know we're out of time. So just very quickly, if there's one thing, one solution that you can propose for the current crisis, because we are at an impasse, the protests are ongoing, but it doesn't seem like Netanyahu's stopping. He doubled down in his speech last night. What is the solution? He will double down. We will double down. At the end, he will fall once he leaves politics, and I wish him, no one wants to see him in, uh, in prison, but he has to pay for his crimes. And in Israel, 97% uh, of criminal court cases ended with guilty verdict. So he knows that he's at risk. 
he has to leave power and he will either leave or fully capitulate under the pressure of the uh, uh, protest. And then a new chapter will start where Israel come back to the to track as a vibrant democracy, probably at first with unity government that it has its first job to establish the equivalent of uh, of constitution. We have a basic document called the Declaration of Independence. If we just follow the values that encompass into into this document, we are on the uh, sure positive track toward a healthy constitution. Former Prime Minister Ehud Barak, thank you for your time. Thank you. And that was Ehud Barak, the former Prime Minister of Israel. We have several interesting shows coming up in the next few weeks. If you want to track them, just go to foreignpolicy.com slash live. And if you want to watch these live in video, you can do that there too. Subscribers get to submit questions in advance and help frame these discussions. Sign up. Use the code FPLIVE for a discount. I'm Ravi Agrawal, FP's Editor-in-Chief. I'll see you next week. Hi, I'm Annalise Riles, Professor of Law at Northwestern University. I'm also an anthropologist and the host of a new podcast, Everyday Ambassador, where we give you the small tools that make big change. The idea for this show has been a long time in the making. I actually remember the exact day I started thinking about it. It was March 11th, 2011. I was in Japan conducting research on the financial markets of Tokyo. All of a sudden, I heard a loud rumbling sound and the room started shaking. Everything came crashing off the shelves. I looked out the window and I could see the skyscrapers swaying so much that they looked like they would touch. And then the sirens started going off. A tsunami was on the way. These were the harbingers of one of Japan's worst ever disasters, the meltdown of the Fukushima nuclear power plant. The Japanese government now says two reactors are in partial meltdown and four more are at risk. The meltdown completely turned Japan on its head. I saw hundreds of stunned office workers covered in dust walking down empty train tracks to get from the city to their homes in the suburbs. Electricity was out, internet, cell phones. Supplies flew off the shelves of stores. Geiger counters became an in-demand item, which is never a good thing. Living through a crisis of this magnitude was an inflection point for me. To prevent the next Fukushima or any of the other crises we face today, we'll have to work much more effectively across silos of expertise and national boundaries. And we'll need to harness the wisdom of everyone, from local fishers to nuclear physicists, on how the world really works and what happens when things go awry. Using this approach, I've gone on to spur countless innovations in global policy. And that's what this podcast is all about. Everyday Ambassador peels back the curtains of high stakes leadership and gives everyone backstage access to the most powerful methods of diplomacy. 
In each episode, we'll break things down into deceptively simple moves that everyone can make to help build a more peaceful and sustainable world. Like giving a gift. You want to make it tasteful. You want to make it thoughtful. You thought about the other individual. You thought about what their likes and dislikes are. Or creating a fiction. Taking on a fictional scenario and a role outside of the one that you occupy in your day-to-day life allows you to think through what you would like to have done differently. Or just taking the time to have fun. Trying to see this as more so building long-term relationships that are going to be helpful uh, down the line when negotiations are a bit harder, as all negotiations are. Each week, you'll hear surprising stories which reveal the moves you can make to change the status quo, to find ways to connect and move things forward. So join me and become an everyday ambassador coming to you this spring on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you like to listen.